Welcome to the fourth episode of the Daily Flip Podcast. I'm your host, Alex. Today, we're going to be flipping through some of the top stories, including, Can the conservative legal movement stop Biden's student relief plans? A story about a federal court ruling on gender identity, as well as a nice piece here at the end, The art market is heavily segmented. Magnus Reich. And of course, as always, we'll close with our daily delight, a story meant to leave you feeling positive and ready to take on the day. Now that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into the stories. The first one we have here is Can Conservative Legal Movement Stop Biden's Student Debt Repayment Plan? And it comes from The New Republic written by Matt Ford. Can the conservative legal movement stop Biden's student loan relief plans? A lot of administration's plans have perished at the hands of the Supreme Court's conservative bloc, but killing this debt forgiveness program will be tricky. A weird thing about President Biden's student loan relief order last week is that the debate surrounding it is mostly about the policy itself. A few commentators and elected officials have questioned the order's legality, to be sure, but a considerable greater portion of the debate instead revolves around the policy's perceived merits or drawbacks. For once, legal and constitutional concerns have taken a back seat to centrist hawking over inflation and Republicans accusing the administration of offering freebies to layabouts. This isn't how it typically goes these days. Usually whenever the White House tries to do something, it must first fight off lawsuits from the opposing party and its ideological allies. The Biden administration has fought in court to defend environmental regulations, COVID-19 mandates, civil rights protections for LGBT Americans, and more from Republican attorney generals and corporate interests. Executive lawfare is a bipartisan tradition as well. The Trump administration faced lawsuits from Democratic-led states and liberal interest groups for, well, I mean, just about everything he did. The student loan relief appears to be different. No such lawsuit has been filed against the Biden administration to stop the order from taking effect. It's far from clear whether one can even be properly filed to challenge it. And even if one is filed, the Biden administration has good reason to think it can win. For this apparent victory, Democrats can thank the unlikeliness of duos. Former President George W. Bush and the, quote, war on terror. So they bring up a great point here. Don't want to get too far off track. But that really has been the theme of U.S. politics for the last four, maybe even you could argue six, eight years when Obama was still uh, in the presidency. Because of this constant use or the escalation of use of the executive order, which happened under Bush, it got even worse under Obama, and then the same thing happened under Trump and now Biden. Executive orders are a normal part of American life at this point. It's a lot of centralized power that is being placed in the executive. It's been happening ever since the 40s when Roosevelt was in office during the Depression. But we see it continually ramping up 
So the solution from the party that is not in power, that is not in the executive, is, okay, let's find legal grounds and fight it. And that's why Trump appointing justices to the Supreme Court, as well as Biden doing the same and during his uh, first two years as president, have been major, major talking points. Because nowadays, they can only resort to having this battle fought in the legal arena. And that's why the legal arena has become so much more politicized. The legal arena, the judicial branch, is supposed to be removed. It's supposed to try to be objective where it can. Obviously, every judge has their own opinions. But over time, it has more become a battle of, oh, are you appointing a constitutionalist? Or are you appointing a more liberal justice? Are you looking for a justice who reads the Constitution as it was meant to be read when they first wrote it? Or someone who's willing to use precedent and other such changes in the words or changes in circumstances to kind of find a new way to interpret the legislation as it was written? So... This is extremely important, and he brings up a great point. And I said that I wasn't going to get too far off on this one, and of course I did. So (laughs) let's get back to the article. From where does Biden claim the power to wipe away so much student debt? The White House pointed to the Higher Education Relief Opportunities for Students Act of 2003, or better known as the HEROES Act for short. The law sprang from the September 11th attacks, a temporary measure passed by Congress in 2001, to allow the president to waive certain student loan requirements for those affected by the attacks. In 2003, Congress passed a broader version of the law in light of the then-ongoing wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and the large number of U.S. service members who would have to repay loans while serving overseas. Though it was temporary at first, Congress later extended it in 2005 and then made it permanent in 2007. What does that sound like? That's always how it goes. Oh, we're going to put a temporary measure in place 20 years later. Oh, well, we might as well ratify it at this point. We might as well keep it going and make it permanent. The HEROES Act refashioned the White House's post-9-11 authority in a much broader way. It allows the executive branch to, quote, waive or modify any statutory or regulatory provision applicable to student financial assistance programs under Title IV of the Higher Education Act, end quote. Whenever the administration, quote, deems necessary in connection with a war or other military operation or national emergency, end quote. And that's the really key part here, national emergency. That's what a lot of the uh, Biden's argument lies on here, because if they hadn't included that, and it was just talking about during war, military operations, he would have no leg to stand on. But since they said national emergency, and by Biden's definition, or at least by the administration's definition, we're still in a national emergency because of COVID, this is where they're able to worm their way into being able to use this statute uh, to repay, sorry, to cancel the payments of some of these loans for students. The United States is not currently engaged in a large-scale military operation in any foreign country, but it is still undergoing a national emergency thanks to the COVID pandemic, 
which has affected every single American's life in some way. The Trump administration famously used this power to grant student loan debitors a reprieve from making payments during the early stages of the pandemic. The Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel, which provides in-house legal advice to the executive branch, emphasized these invocations in its 25-page analysis of the order's legality. The office's lawyers argued that the HEROES Act, broad language, and recent precedents showed that the executive branch could take sweeping action sought by Biden. Quote, most notably, the Secretary of Education's 2020 action suspended the obligation to pay student debt for every student loan held by the United States, even though such relief undoubtedly was not necessary to avoid financial harm for some of the suspension's beneficiaries. End quote. The office concluded, quote, this applications of the HERO Act, two of which were implicitly approved by Congress, plainly reflect an understanding that the statute affords flexibility for the secretary to enact prolific waivers and modifications that extend beyond the particular hardships they aim to prevent, end quote. So blah, 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 lawyer speak. We have as much flexibility as we want. And Congress gave it to us, so go suck it. Which is, I mean, they're not wrong. It's just a very classy way of saying it. They could have whittled that down a little bit, but I get it. They're supposed to be lawyers, and it's supposed to all be shrouded in fancy language. Not everyone is persuaded. Almost 100 House Republicans sent a letter to Speaker Nancy Pelosi last week where they derided Biden's order as, quote, an illegal act by a president desperate for a political win, end quote. National Review's Rich Laurie complained that the, quote, legal justification for Biden's move is so brazenly pretextual that it might make even Saul Goodman blush, end quote. The Wall Street Journal's editorial board fumed that, quote, there has never been an executive action of this costly magnitude in peacetime, end quote, and claimed, quote, nothing comes close to this half trillion dollar or more executive coup, end quote. If only their blood pressure got this high when Biden's predecessor almost got several members of Congress and former Vice President Mike Pence killed last year. So why hasn't anyone hauled the Biden administration into court to stop it? One problem for any potential lawsuit is finding a plaintiff. Times Magazine reported this week that conservative legal activists are currently searching for someone who might have standing to challenge the order in court. But that requires someone who suffered some kind of legal cognizable injury from Biden's order. The debitors themselves aren't good candidates, for one. Nobody with student loans is going to sue the Biden administration so that they pay more for them. And even if they did, it would be strange to argue that loan forgiveness is a, quote, injury in any sense of the word. Times citing conservative lawyers floated some hypothetical litigants who might be able to bring a challenge. Among the prospective plaintiffs are student loan servicers, which act as a middleman between the federal government and the debtors themselves. It's unclear how they would get injured in any way by this particular change in federal regulation. Another alternative 
offered by the magazine would be a borrower who makes more than $125,000 a year and therefore doesn't qualify for the order's relief. Means-tested programs have generally survived such scrutiny before. There would be little incentive to keep means-testing benefits if they hadn't. It was also suggested that one of the chambers of Congress could have standing to challenge it, but that would require Republicans to win control of one of them first. So it sounds like there's not really a, a good option here. I don't think that the Republicans are going to get their way on this one unless they find someone who is directly hurt by this executive order. And as they just laid out there, I don't see many situations where that can happen. But then again, something can come out. People may get creative. So we'll see. It'll kind of unfold here in the next month because he just announced this on Friday. It's Wednesday at this point, so it's been less than a week. We'll see. They'll find a way. Other typical avenues of executive lawfare are likely to be useless. An increasingly common tactic is for the state attorneys generals to sue the opposing party's president to stop some sort of executive action by arguing that it somehow affects the state's interests. No Republican attorney general has tried to attack Biden's order on these grounds, however. Their state university systems are still getting the student loans money, after all. Biden's order only affects the debtors' repayments to the federal government. It is healthy and normal to hold presidents accountable when they do something that goes beyond the bounds of federal law or constitutional power. At the same time, it's also refreshing to be able to debate a policy decision on its merits. So much of our political system is now... channeled through the courts that is often feels like the merits and the drawbacks of a particular policy item get subsumed by arcane questions of administrative law. Some of this can be blamed on the atrophy of Congress's lawmaking ability. Some can be traced to the federal court's willingness to intervene in these disputes more often. Whatever the cause, it is less than ideal for basic democratic governance. It's still possible, of course, that some litigant backed by a conservative legal movement, somehow manages to persuade a Trump-appointed federal judge in Texas that Biden's order harmed them in some way. After conservatives used the state's abortion bounty law to do an end around the federal civil rights laws and the Supreme Court's precedents at the time. So anything is still possible. But for now, it's nice to see the nation debating whether something the president did is a good idea instead of whether five justices on the Supreme Court will actually allow it to happen, which is a good point. This is a conversation I had with my professor of English my first year at college, which is, do we really want to have a system that encourages people to just go to the legal system, the judicial system, before actually talking about a policy and seeing whether people actually want it and is it going to be effective at solving what it says it's going to solve or helping the people that says it's going to help. So it is nice that we're actually having a values conversation and people have to come to the table and they can't hide behind, oh, well, it's illegal. They actually have to say why they think it's not okay and they have to have well-formed rational arguments. Now, does that mean that they're not going to find a way to challenge it legally? No. 
there's always a loophole. There is always a workaround, just like they were talking about with the Texas law. So we'll see. We'll see how it all pans out here soon. All right. Our next story is also a legal one. Very legal heavy day today. And this is focused around uh, a federal court ruling on gender identity upends civil rights law. And this is from the Daily Signal. In a shocking and first-of-its-kind reading of more than 30 years old disability law, a federal judge ruled that the distress that results from being a person feeling that he or she is the wrong sex is a disability that must be accommodated under the Americans with Disabilities Act. If the opinion is left to stand, it would open the door for those who consider themselves transgender and feel clinically distressed to receive public accommodations in bathrooms, locker rooms, prisons, and same-sex housing, and more. U.S. Circuit Judge Dina Gribben Motz of the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals wrote the majority opinion for the divided three-judge panel in Williams v. Kincaid holding that under the American Disabilities Act, gender dysphoria is, quote, a disability. Judge Pamela Harris joined Mott's opinion to form the majority. The ADA is a civil rights law that prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all areas of public life, including employment, education, transportation, and in places that are open to the general public, a.k.a. public accommodations. So what's the practical impact of this decision? It means that those with gender dysphoria, an incongruence between someone's gender identity and assigned sex, end quote, that results in, quote, clinically significant distress, end quote, as the American Psychiatric Association defines it, are not only protected from discrimination because of this so-called ability, but they are entitled to reasonable accommodation for it. In the case of former Fairfax County, Virginia prisoner Kesha Williams, that, quote, reasonable accommodation should have, according to the court, included sending Williams, a biological male, back into the woman's prison. Williams had filed a disability discrimination claim against various prison employees alleging mistreatment while incarcerated. So take a step back. This is stemming from Miss Kesha Williams having a problem with the um, the court system, so she, or sorry, the prison system, and then she filed basically an injunction or a disability discrimination claim, and it worked its way up to the uh, district court. What I want to know here is. Did she just file the disability discrimination claim? And in order to be justified in ordering something, uh, in asking or filing something like this, did she have to argue the merits that gender dysphoria is a disability and that's why it kept going up to the district court? I'm very curious. And I don't remember when I was reading this if they got into that before, but it's an interesting question that does need to be addressed, not just in Virginia, but probably on a national scale as well, because this could have broad implications. And this is only in the fourth court, uh, circuit court, so it's only going to apply to a little bit of the East Coast. But still, I want to see the implications of this long term uh, if it affects other decisions in the nation. 
However, in order to reach this conclusion, the majority had to clear one very big hurdle, the language of the ADA itself, which explicitly excludes A, homosexuality and bisexuality. And this is a direct quote from the uh, Americans with Disabilities Act. Quote, for the purpose of definition of disability in section 121022, one of this title, homosexuality and bisexuality, are not impairments and, as such, are not disabilities under this chapter. B, certain conditions. Under this chapter, the term disability shall not include, one, transvestitism, transsexualism, pedophilia, exhibitism, voyeurism, gender identity disorder not resulting from physical impairment, or other sexual behavior disorders. So yes, it does sound like they're coming up against a direct wall here, which is in the bill itself, when they wrote it in the 70s, they say that gender identity disorder is not a uh, disability unless it stems from a physical impairment, which means if for some reason you had lost uh, some of your genitalia and that had caused you to no longer associate with the gender that you were at the time, then that could be considered a disability. So the American with Disabilities Act seems to focus or most definitely focuses in on physical ailments rather than mental ones. So this is why it's kind of a stretch. And that's where a lot of the issue has been this last 10 years or so. So it's very interesting to see where these courts are coming down now. And I want to put this out in the public square. I want to see what more people have to say about this because it does basically ask the question, if gender dysphoria is a disability, then can anyone who is being employed claim discrimination based upon that? And what are the clear guidelines? So basically what's happening now is we're having a back-end solution. The justice system is saying that it's a disability rather than it being codified in law, which doesn't give businesses and other organizations a clear outline as to what they need to do to make sure that they're not discriminating against these people. So it's very, very, it's a very tight wire for some of these companies and organizations to walk here in the future. So I think it's an interesting backplugging that is happening here rather than going through the normal legislative means. Because the statute clearly eliminates disability protections for, quote, gender identity disorder, Motts engaged in a controlled legal analysis to determine that gender dysphoria is not actually a gender identity disorder. To reach that conclusion, she did not look at the statute's language at the time of its enactment, but much more recent change on gender-related psychiatric diagnoses, one not envisioned, anticipated, or incorporated by the ADA's original drafters in 1990. Motts relied heavily on a change made by the American Psychiatric Association in the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual of Mental Health, 5th edition, or DSM-5, in 2013. The DSM-5 is the standard classification of mental disorders used by mental health professionals in the United States. At that time, the APA replaced, quote, gender identity disorder with, quote, gender dysphoria because the change focused on the diagnosis on the distress that some people who consider themselves transgender experience and for which they may seek psychiatric, medical, and surgical treatments. 
instead of on the desire to be a gender that other than the one that were, they were born to. Moss determined that such a change was good enough to stretch the ADA well beyond the limits of what Congress determined it ought to be originally. She wrote, In sum, the APA's removal of the gender identity disorder diagnosis and the addition of the gender dysphoria diagnosis to the DSM-5 reflected a significant shift in mental understanding. The obsolete diagnosis focused solely on cross-gender identification, the modern one on clinically significant distress. Put simply, while the older DSM pathologized the very existence of transgender people, the recent DSM-5's diagnosis of gender dysphoria takes it as a given that being transgender is not a disability and affirms that a transgender person's medical needs are just as deserving of treatment and protection as anyone else's. So, back to the author of the article here. In sum, if you're, quote, distressed about being transgender, then you're entitled to all the accommodations you'd like in public life, whether in bathrooms, locker rooms, prisons, or same-sex housing. The illogical conclusion, of course, is that transgender individuals who might be perfectly at ease with their underlying biological sex are not entitled to accommodations at all. As to how they will play out in modern America, one thing is for sure, it will be messy. So yeah, I, I do I do think it leaves an interesting loophole, which is she focuses in her decision more about the distress you feel as a transgender person so if you're not a distressed transgender person, does that mean you don't have the right or you don't have the ability to claim that you're being discriminated against? Maybe I'm being very ignorant here, but that's that's what it sounds like because they're talking about the DSM-5 and gender dysphoria as the distress you feel as a transgender person. So does that mean you can't have gender dysphoria if you're not distressed? And that does that mean that you're therefore don't have a disability, which means you're not protected under the law? I just think it's a, a very interesting hole that they're leaving here. The court has not only established the possibility that employers, schools, prisons, hospitals, and other entities will have to make judgment calls on when an accommodation is required and when it isn't, it also creates a loophole for those who consider themselves transgender who might want to demand future accommodations, but who may not, in reality, experience any distress at all. In his well-reasoned dissent, Judge A. Marvin Quattlebaum pointed out that the case was really a matter of simple statutory construction and that the majority's ruling was supported, wasn't supported by the law's text when it was enacted. He wrote, as Williams noted, some organizations have removed the phrase gender identity disorder from their publications altogether and clarified that distress and discomfort from identifying with a different gender from the gender assigned at birth constitutes gender dysphoria, not a gender identity disorder. But even if Williams is correct about such changes in understanding, Linguistic drift cannot alter the meaning of the words in the ADA when it was enacted at that time. The meaning of gender identity disorder included gender dysphoria, as alleged by Williams, 
Under basic principles of statutory construction, Williams' ADA claim should be dismissed. When the ADA was signed into law, gender identity disorder was understood to include what Williams alleges to be gender dysphoria, end quote. So this also ties back into the last story, what I was talking about, judges that take the law as it was intended when it was written versus ones who try to frame it in a modern point of view. And I think that could be a little bit dangerous just because words do change. 30 years ago, gay was a slur. Now it's embraced by the community. And 50 years ago, it meant happy. If you go back and watch some videos or advertisements, they say, have a gay old day or something to that effect. So if they want to have a modern solution to a modern problem or a problem that can be defined better in modern terms, since we know more about it, then we need to pass legislation now rather rather than trying to interpret previous legislation into a modern viewpoint. At least that's my opinion. So I would agree with uh, Quattlebaum here, at least in the way he phrased it and looking at the law as it was intended then versus what we wanted to say now. Back to the article. While the decision only directly covers those entities within the Fourth Court Circuit Court of Appeals, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Maryland, and West Virginia, the court's opinions has fanned the flames of controversy over transgender rights on a greater scale. And it is also a prime example of why textualism, the interpretation of the law based on the ordinary means meaning of words as they were understood at the time of the law's enactment, matters. Oh, well, look at that. The author agrees with me a little bit. All right, so then we have... One more story here, and this one strays a little bit different. I normally haven't, or at least until this point, have not talked about art. But it also talks about NFTs, so a little bit of digital currency in there for some of my digital currency or uh, investing fans. So this one comes from Kitco. The art market is heavily segmented. Magnus Reich. The art market is heavily skewed towards a few artists who are good at networking, said Magnus Reich, an art economist and author. Quote, 20 20 artists make up almost 50% of the total value of the contemporary art auction market, said Reich. Quote, if you want to make money investing in art, it's very simple. Buy one of the big household names. Reich gave the examples of Andy Warhol, Jeff Koons, Damien Hirst, as being household names. He added that when it comes to investing in big names, there are nuances. A green Warhol sells for less than a red Warhol, he said. A basket from 1981 sells for more than baskets in his later days, end quote. Also, quote, it comes down to little nuances in getting access to those prime works, the top of the top of the top, end quote. According to Reich, quote, 99.99% of artists, end quote, are not a good investment. Reich spoke with David Lynn, anchor and producer at Kitco News. NTF, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, are records on a blockchain corresponding to assets. Often, NFTs are digital works of art. The merge, which depicts the orbit of two spherical planets, 
is the most expensive NFT ever sold at a price of $91.8 million. Quote, the NFT world is bizarre, said Reich, who authored the book How to Create and Sell NFTs. Quote, there's only one reason why people buy NFTs, and that's because they want to make money. End quote. Because NFTs are linked to a blockchain, their proponents claim that they are difficult to hack and counterfeit. Thus, NFTs have a built-in security feature that verifies their authenticity. Quote, NFTs are here to stay because the technology can revolutionize the art world, said Reich. Quote, when you buy an artwork in a secondary market, what they show you in order to prove its authenticity are invoices from the gallery that they originally bought it from. Invoices are paperwork, and they can be forged. NFTs can solve this. I believe that in the future, every artwork that leaves the studio of an artist will be registered as an NFT, end quote. Being a successful artist. For those considering a career in art, research shows that the social networks matter more than skills or training as an artist. Quote, if you don't make it into one of the central networks within your first five to ten ex- exhibitions in your career, you will not make it as an artist, end quote, said Reich. Quote, we looked at all different other factors, such as colors of paint, subject, material, age of the artist, and so on. But what really mattered for success of the artist is the network that he is in, end quote. Reich added that, quote, there is only one network that leads to success, and that network consists of a few galleries and a few museums, end quote. He specified that, quote, nine of the top ten institutions in this one central network are in New York, end quote. Which is so interesting that the art market is so centralized in New York. I mean, it makes sense. A lot of artsy creative types go to New York, and there's probably a few networks in L.A. or San Francisco, the California area, But the fact that 9 out of 10 of the major museums are there in New York, that is extremely centralized, and it's extremely sad. So I wonder if, along with making it easier to identify whether products are legitimate, which is what one of the key parts that Reich liked about NFTs, I wonder if it will also make the art world more accessible in that more people, a wider variety of people, have both access to the NFTs and also the ability to create new art. So we'll see how that pans out. I did have a political cartoon that I thought was quite funny. Uh, And it it says, uh, 2024, Trump with baggage. It has Trump down at the starting line with a whole bunch of baggage. And then the next panel says Trump without baggage 2024. And it just is just DeSantis. <laughs> so if you want to see that, it will be linked into the description with all these other stories. Um, but before we go, we got to do the daily delight just to make you leave in a good mood. So this one comes from Gossamer is Awesomer. And it was posted on the Fox News 8, which is North Carolina News. Utter pups at NC Aquarium get cute names after vote. Core Beach, North Carolina. Here are some cute names for some cute pups. On Tuesday, the North Carolina Aquarium at Fort Fisher decided to name three of the otter pups at the location. 
After two weeks of voting, with the numbers totaling more than 14,000 entries, the name of the community, the name that the community chose for the female trio of small clawed otter pups is Stella, May, and Celine. The names all have meanings, as well as Stella being Latin for star, May is for the Thai goddess of water, and Celine being Greek for the moon. The utter pups were born on May 21st. And you can also check out the new otter pups by reservation at the aquarium. And there are a few different cute videos here and one cute photo showing off the little trio. So, like I said, if you want to see those, link is also in the description. It will bring you to the Flipboard magazine. All right. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Only one more thing to say. Stay safe. Don't die.